2: Hello, and welcome to this episode of New Books Intellectual History, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Thomas Kingston. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Philip J. Stern, Associate Professor of History at Duke University, who's going to be talking to me about his new book, Empire Incorporated, out now with Harvard Press. It's great to have you here.
1: Uh, thanks, Thomas. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to, uh, about the opportunity to talk to you about this book.
2: So let's get straight into the deep end. Um, As anybody who has briefly checked your cv can see like your 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 first publication was on the east india company uh and it's sort of um how it sort of straddles the line between or blurs the line even between politics and business and that was featured on the new books network back in 2011 if anybody wants to go listen to it um so once a, this book sort of returns to the same topic, this ebb and flow of business and politics, and well, as the title suggests, empire. Uh, but this is on a much grander scale. Was this the natural progression, sort of a, a zooming out, or was it something that really uh, that, that that really just came to you based on, shall we say, um, a prompt or a, a trigger?
1: Yeah, it's a really it's a really excellent question, and it's, I'm I'm really excited to be back on the Newbrook Network to talk about this book. I mean, you know, one sense, of course, right? There's a clear connection. The book, uh, the uh, the company state, uh, certainly sparked my interest in these questions. But in a way, that book started from, uh, I would say, the reverse place. I, I in that book, I was uh, trying to revisit the question of how British India came to be, and. You know, one of the most puzzling things about, I think, the making of British India was the fact that uh, we always take it for granted at this point, but that it was the work of a company uh, initially, not not the state. And so that book was about, to some extent, how, uh, you know, the puzzle of the question of how a commercial body like the East India Company could become a territorial empire. And the answer that I came up with in the process of investigating that question was at the premise of that question that we had had for so long was wrong right that the that, that, that as a corporation and by the very nature of how early modern overseas commerce worked the East city company had been from its inception a form of government over people places things um uh so in a way that the title was both a statement about um uh about the you know the a play on the idea of the nation state and other ways in which we can sort of imagine organizing political community but it really originally started from Thinking about how people talked about this thing in the literature about a company state that um, only emerged in the late 18th century. And I was saying, no, you know, you, you go back about a century, you can really see a much longer and more long term origin. But in the process of writing that book and finishing that book, a couple of things happened. One um, was that I started to notice how much the East India Company became a model for other colonial companies. Um, even and perhaps most especially, what was most interesting was uh, uh, it became something more of a model, even as we would have assumed, and as you know, historians would tell us that it's the idea was becoming increasingly outmoded and under assault. So, in the 19th century, you start to see uh, uh, people uh, challenging the idea that a company should be a colonial government, and eventually, up to and including the removal of the East India Company from government. Governance in 1858, in the wake of the Indian Rebellion. Um, somehow, the company for a lot of colonial promoters and other companies kept being a positive model. And that was puzzling to me and problematic. And so I kept um, one And In fact, at, at a very, very early iteration of the d- you know, depths of time, I actually thought about this project just being about the afterlives, quote unquote, of the East India Company and thinking about how it sort of spawned out and in its influence. But and the the more I got into it, that story was problematic because I kept seeing companies and corporations everywhere, right? Like um, that. The more I dug, the more surprised I was about just how pervasive this model was. But many of them did not look like the East India Company, and they did not fit the model of the company state. I've been quite flattered; people have taken up the model of the company state to look at other major territorial companies, and they're very much a big part of my book, Empire uh, Incorporated. Uh, but you know, one another early iteration of this project was actually just going to be a book about urban corporations and how they spread throughout empires, cities, and municipalities. Uh, there were so many different kinds of joint stock and corporate projects. You know, some for territorial rule, but others for which governance or colonial promotion took a range of forms. Some that governed directly, others that parceled out land to others. Um, some that had nothing to do with territory uh, in a direct sense at all, or some like railway companies or mining companies or logging companies, which exerted a kind of jurisdiction, or what I would call a kind of micro sovereignty, kind of in the vein of the way that uh, uh, Lauren Benton's pioneering work has talked about uh, historical geography uh, uh, and sovereignty. Um, that that the the kinds of power they exerted did not look like the massive territorial empire that we know that India came to be. It also didn't look like what the literature tended to call those things, which was informal empire. And a lot of what I've written about in this book is trying to explode the. The dichotomy or the distinction that you can kind of that there's the formal empire if the place is colored red on the map, and then there's the the informal empire influence, um, or that there's um, colonies that are about settlement and colonies that are about rule and uh, these corporate and joint stock models, um, kind of complicate that 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 um, that idea. Um, also, a very key part of this book um, were the many 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 companies that failed. Uh, that were just ideas that um, that that were scams that didn't work. Um, well, you know, what, one one you know uh, that I'm quite taken with in the book, I you know ended up up calling a very a, a get a get quick a get get poor quick scheme. You know that it was not the juggernaut um, form that we expected to be. My argument is that all of those failures amount up to a phenomenon, um, and you know uh, a lot of other. Uh, dynamics in the book that look very different uh, as you sort of get into it, um, companies that were connected to one another or fragmented subsidiaries, things that weren't companies is models that are supposed to be antithetical to company formation, like um, what we call proprietorships in the 7th century, individual um, uh, uh, grants to someone like, say, William Penn. But if you look and dig underneath it, uh, joint stock models of uh, sort of uh, territorial... Or property, or, or rule of property, uh, underlie even those models, and even the East India Company. Uh, as I got back into these other periods, didn't look so much like one company as it did a conglomeration of different kinds of forms and influences. Uh, one of the arguments I make in the book is that you know we see that in the nineteenth century we think tend to think of the transformation from a quote unquote company raj to a crown raj. Uh, in 1858, but what I call in the book a company's Raj emerged in between those as the East India Company um, became more of a government than a merchant. Uh, you start to see all of these kinds of companies I was just talking about um, that uh, that start to do the business of government even under East India Company rule and continue on through, uh, uh, through into this period uh, when the East India Company is removed from government and finally, uh, you know, uh, the, another way uh, you know, another way this book sort of moves on from the company state uh, book is that it, um, it it really spends a lot more time trying to think about how thinking about a narrative of the British Empire through companies or corporations uh, challenges or thinking about a British Empire, or an English Empire through companies, or corporations, challenges what we think of as English or British. A lot of these companies have foreign investment. They all certainly have um, foreign employees. And they're all like the East India Company to some extent, rooted in indigenous forms of sovereignty and the ability to make claims over that. So uh, I mean, I guess if the project started with the company state, I hope it will not be read as like only an extension of it, Uh, but really also like both um, a continuation, but also a sort of a challenge or complication of that model or what happens when you move past... India, which is so absolutely critically important, but since the British Empire in India itself has tended to overshadow or drown out, you know, a lot of these other stories um, and be the measure uh, against which they are sort of set, which I think may not be necessarily the right way to look at these things. I mean, I found the book fascinating, and part of that comes from
2: my own personal interests. I um, I remember reading. with my my focus on Burma, I remember reading work from uh, Furnival about, he speaks about Leviathan and when you're reading about the early days of sort of the British Empire, which was the East India Company really, in Burma it it doesn't seem like a company, it it seems it's it's a government, so this was really, really fascinating to me and I, I mean what the book manages to do so well is, it covers such a huge span of time, I mean and in a way, even as someone who's a graduate student working on history, what the book did was fill in a lot of the gaps for me. I mean, like, it sort of joined a lot of these dots that I'd seen as disparate. I mean, for example, the book opens talking about the loss of Calais, and we don't really think about Britain's European ambitions being linked to... Like, we don't think about that even being in the same period, sort of, as in, like, new world exploration, and I think one of the things that the book also emphasises is that um, it wasn't always like going to be new world exploration you see the muscovy company you see these you see you you talk about the plantations in ireland there's this is a very like um it's a very prolific sort of approach that evolves um i think the other thing that the book emphasizes is that it does evolve sort of organically i mean a lot of sort of economic histories we sort of see have this very sort of sharp line that all of a sudden finance comes and everything's changed for for good or for bad should we say um and that's this sort of revolutionary moment because without that but really what the book does is um i mean as as you say the book is an experiment in collective legal and intellectual and institutional biography that places an originally supporting character at the center of the story and i think reed does place it at the center of the story um and and yeah as so i say, it's an ambitious task and yeah you accomplish it convincingly. So Given this ambitious task and given that, as you say, lots of people hadn't looked at it this way, what were the main challenges in this and what were the barriers to, like what were the, what were the, what were the barriers that had prevented other people?
1: Yeah, that's a, it's a really great question. Uh, at first I have to say like, that was, I, I really appreciate the reading you just gave the most flattering thing, you know, anybody can do after someone's written a book is, uh, uh, re-articulate it and, show that you kind of get what I was trying to do. Um, and, and, and I think you've summarized it. It's always better better than I could. I, it, it's um, um, this is it, it, I, try, trying to look at how this idea developed over time at, you know, in and, and the best way as I do say in the book, the way I think about it is a kind of an intellectual biography or a legal biography of a concept over time. Um, intergenerationally, so the way I tended to think of it is like a family tree or you know a, a kinship chart where you could see uh, these things develop over 300 years, but it wasn't necessarily uh, a one-to-one or an, a, a relationship or or through analogy. I think we tend to sometimes look back. Something as a, someone who started working on the East India Company, you see a, a lot of of these the phenomenon of co- corporate power today compared to the East India Company. What I wanted to look at is how these things evolved over time. So it look, it's a lot like genetics. You can see family resemblances, but maybe not not identical, or you see recombinations of ideas and in institutions or financial schemes or, or things that are influenced by external factors like changes in the way the British government worked or, or other kinds of institutions worked. So um, uh, that is absolutely what I've been going, at, going for, as well as this idea of... Um, you know, thinking of it as a kind of minor character study, you know, the, the, you might call it the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of British imperial history or something like that. Taking the companies that had always been there, it's felt like we didn't know they were there, but they tend to be part of our stories of the British empire as a, um, you know, as a supporting character. So what happens if we put them in the center? I want to make the point, and I, I hope the book is read this way. I, I spake this point in the introduction, but I, you know, can't make it enough, that the point of doing that is not to turn things on around and say, it's just companies or it's just the joint stock corporation that runs empire it's a, it's to say that empire requires all kinds of stories at the same time and looking at it from this perspective this character you get a different um you get a different way of thinking about how empire works or what's actually behind it that might shake us up to 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 sort of think a little bit about some of our assumptions about things but you're right. It, um, was a challenge. It's, it It was probably one of the hardest things I've, I've ever done was this book because I, at some point in this process, I decided it was going to be a story that looks across this entire phenomenon, not a story about, you know, case studies or particular ones, which would be, I think, perfectly, uh, good and maybe even a more sane way to go about doing this. Um, but, um, but what, because of what I was saying before, how I just found the phenomenon repeat, it was a bit like when you, uh, Learn a new word and uh, you see it all over the place. It it, it began to um, just seem like you really had to trace that phenomenon. So, you know, what were the challenges? It's a great question. The scale was absolutely uh, the hardest part. Figuring out how to tell little stories and weave them together into one big story was extremely difficult in a way that people could follow. Uh, you know, the book has a lot of detail, and I really hope. That people can read for that detail, but also see past it to the big picture. Um, As with a lot of work, not getting, you know, there's so many interesting and, you know, frankly disturbing stories that you come across in the process of doing this work and trying to figure out how much of any one part you need to spend time with uh, to get the big picture. Um, how can readers who may be not familiar with the history of the British empire or even historians of the British empire who may be, um, modernists or early modernists who may not be familiar with the other side of the story, how much do you have to introduce them to, um, how much muting of the kind of conventional narrative, which I don't disagree with necessarily. Um, but wanted to look at differently, do does one do? And I, so I think that, um, uh, winding my way to the other answer your story, which is that I one of the challenges with this and I think maybe one of the reasons why no one's tried it before other than again um people being more 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 reasonable uh, uh than I am uh is that um is I think the historiographical borders and boundaries uh that we the silos we tend to be in um especially between histories of like early modern Empire and modern Empire. Uh, you know, and so I had done work on the East India Company, but I had also done uh, 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 work uh, on the history of mercantilism, uh, and, you know, a, a book that I co-edited with uh, my colleague and friend uh, Carl Wetterlund that was about um, uh, sort of rethinking, you know, the boundaries between what we think of as kind of early modern political economy and modern political economy. And I think I've kind of been thinking about this theme for years and years about how, how is someone who was trained as someone working in the 17th and 18th centuries how much that period doesn't just get wiped away at the Napoleonic Wars, the French Revolution, uh, and the Industrial Revolution, but you really see its traces all the way through into the 19th and 20th centuries? And so, um, a lot of this book is sort of asking the question of like, just how modern is modern empire, um, and and where are the where do those lines um, break? Uh, I think maybe another answer to your question uh, is that um is that we're really you know a lot of the way we think about companies is really driven by a 20th century understanding of what these things are um i would i would argue that that the work i'm trying to do and i am not alone there's an immense amount of work out there um of people working on particular companies or particular regions or places that i respect and, and make a, a great deal of use of in the book uh, hopefully to uh, to you know to their author's satisfaction um that rethink this, but nonetheless, the our modern assumptions are very powerful about how companies are private bodies driven by self evident interests about making money, and states are public bodies driven by self evident interests about uh, you know about forms of governance. And I think once you break that assumption, all kinds of possibilities open up for just seeing things differently. And so you ask why maybe this hasn't we haven't sort of seen this before. Uh, I, I think that it's. It's it's to some extent um, because it we're the one of the the modern state and modern companies the, the narrative of what you know the, of the proper boundaries from public and private are just so powerful and hard to read. It's also one of the reasons I wanted to write this book. It's one of the things that motivates me. Um, finally, I have to say, you know, if I'm thinking about this on a personal level, uh, one of the answers might actually be COVID uh you know covid it was it was devastating uh for any number of reasons very challenging uh for me personally and professionally but one of the things that happened is i had a deadline looming and it was really you know uh writing this book was to some extent a form of a personal and professional connection when we were all isolated from one another was um the fact that uh you know more archival deep dives were not possible and so you were left with not only you know a lot of digitized sources, which I might not have looked at before, I'd opened my eyes up to a whole bunch of things at three in the morning when I was you know trying to get these things done before all of the Zoom calls started for the day. Uh, but also, um, you know, I'd always I say this in the book somewhere, you know, I'd always imagined writing over 300, 400 years was going to have to be a work of synthesis and to some extent. What I was trying to do with this book was get my arms around what was becoming a massive cottage industry of work on this subject, and maybe see if we could put a big story together from all of the really excellent research that was being done locally. Uh, but um, uh, but being cut off from the archive and being cut off from being able to travel, you know, really uh, compelled me to 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 really think about that on, on a different level. And so I think part of what I'd like people to know what I what what I you know, hope people will appreciate about the book is that there's really a lot you can do with the excellent work other people do by stringing it together. And also, I mean, there's a, a lot of archival work in the book that I'd done before and a lot of reliance on um, digital sources, uh, which I also think uh, during the 2020, 2021, when people were scrambling uh, to, to put so many things online, it really did open up a lot of other things that probably also created an immense amount of anxiety because I thought I was done and I wasn't even close to done uh, with the book. So um you know I think that's maybe part of the story. Uh, I'm not I haven't uh, fully processed it uh, enough just yet to really give a better answer than that. but I think um, you know I think I think we are. Gra- it's, a, it's, it's a it's a way which we're all grappling with the overload that comes with digitization uh, and with with what's available now um that maybe wasn't even five years ago.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think you
1: know, I think that's a great answer. Um, and I mean, that's
2: one of the things that impressed me about the book. As I said in, in the previous question, is that, that I want to emphasise it is that it's sort of it, it's it's broad as well as deep. It, it's covering across the world, but it's covering through time. Um, and 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 as part of that as well, obviously, it's touching on um, so many different sectors. And uh, as I'm sure, it, it, it almost seems like a uh, you you always hear people complaining about it but it seems to be something that you've successfully conquered but still remains an issue is this is these internal discipline boundaries that oh this is business history this is um imperial history or um this is north american history and i think that the works like this really show that not only are, th- are these boundaries um artificial but in some ways they're also quite harmful and restrictive because they mean you're only getting this one perspective on such a integral topic to world history and and that I mean that also runs through as a thread as well because you speak about the the division between public and private sector and yet this is a topic we talk about today right you know what I mean we talk about government subsidies the left and the right have issues with that you, know what I mean? you can have a fiscally conservative argument about the government supporting why why are they supporting businesses, giving them an unfair example? And then you have the left argument that might say, why is why is this crony capitalism going on? And the book shows us that really, that's not a really new thing. And that governments have always had this uneasy, shall we say, relationship with um with companies in that sort of that are a best friend in some ways, but they're the worst enemy in other ways. And I mean the the, the the originally supporting character to use your words is is the joint stock company um and yet and as the book proves it's indispensable for the spread of red across those atlases and yet despite these gains um whether territorial or financial going back to london um there are scathing reports there's public outrage um and all of these things. So, I was hoping you'd give our listeners just a brief insight into this very fraught
1: relationship, but a very important relationship, nonetheless. Yeah, it's a really insightful and um, excellent question. Uh, you know, I, and uh, one of the challenges with this book is that there's no simple answer, right? I mean, I wish I, I wish I had a straightforward answer to tell you. You know, companies are the creatures of the state, or companies are the you know uh, antithesis of the state. In fact, what, one of the premises, one of the main arguments I make in the book. And the one I'm, you know, I think that drives uh, has driven me sort of theoretically, I uh, conceptually is that uh, that actually going back to its medieval origins, or to make this argument in the introduction, that the that the corporation itself, in a sense, uh, has in its DNA the contradiction uh, or the dilemma or the paradox that it is both, right? It's a it's a model that sort of emerges to kind of uh, for. Medieval jurists to get their heads around the 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 diversity of forms of governance in 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 medieval Europe, particularly within the church, you know, local governance in the church, or within something like the Holy Roman Empire, uh, you know, it's a model that emerges uh, to kind of conceptualize local church governance or um, particularly municipal governance or or bodies like universities, right? Um, but it doesn't take long. In fact, quite kind of simultaneously, the theoretical thing. That is behind a corporation. The idea that you can make a kind of abstract, transcendent body politic person that is either out of an individual, or most like, or more likely out of a group of individuals, uh, becomes uh, kind of the fundamental building block. As a number of scholars have shown, uh, going back to like Ernst Kantorowicz's "The King's Two Bodies," it becomes the foundation for thinking about modern sovereignty. Like, how do you think about a modern state but as a juristic person uh, that is the the sum of its parts, but also the greatest, greater than its parts. And the, the most iconic image of this is, of course, the frontispiece to, to, to Hobbes's Leviathan of all the people inside of the, the, the sovereign. Um, so there's a theoretical point, but I think it actually has real world implications. One of my arguments in the book is that it becomes even more complicated when you start to apply this corporate model to commercial life and then to send it overseas where sovereignty is even more multi. You know, multivalent and complicated. Uh, So, from its kind of origins, you know, the corporation could give you a vision of pluralism or federalism or, uh, you know, a kind of multicellular form of state, as I think, you know, scholars like Frederick Maitland called it. Um, Or it could give you an image of a singular sovereign state for which these corporations are just sort of subordinate forms. And one thing I trace in the book are all the ways in which people mobilize both arguments. Uh, say in the American Revolution, for example, where you have people arguing that colonies or corporations and therefore should be independent, or you have people arguing colonies or corporations and therefore they should be subordinate like a municipality or something like that. Um, so, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, I think the relationship between say corporations and government, as you're sort of thinking of it, the, the thing that emerges is the thing we might think of as the state, you know, you might think of them as frenemies historically or something like that. Um, but they also are born from the same Cut from the same cloth, and that's a really important way to think about it. Um, You know, one of the important things that I trace in the book, important to my argument, is also that what I call uh, you know venture colonialism as a sort of term of art is an ideology that evolves and changes over the course of these many centuries. But what is sort of common to the, the the common denominator that I'm really trying to look at are people who are basically arguing. That not only the colonial, not only that the, the companies can do colonialism, but that they do it better than the state or than government. Uh, Jeremy Bentham, who um, one of you know, uh, one of the more uh, surprising things that I discovered while doing this research, had his own sort of thought manuscript, thought experiment for a joint stock colony, joint stock company for colonizing Australia that was connected with the projects that were going on in the early 19th century. Uh, the line he uses is you know a, a model where. You know, government will not intermeddle with the business of government. Right? This becomes kind of a very the, the kind of key ideology to this thing, that uh, this phenomenon the, that I was talking about before of the biography. So in a way, it's ideologically centered in an antagonism, right? But that's contradicted by the fact that the categories you just used, as you, you know, I, I think you, you'll know this, right? Um, are totally incoherent, right? The state is not one thing. It's a bunch of people and agencies, sometimes working together, sometimes working in tandem, sometimes working uh, across purposes. Uh, the Colonial Foreign Office, for example, uh, often competing or intention, or say, Crown and Parliament. Right. Also, there's anyone who studied this will absolutely know there's no no lines between companies and government in the sense that members of Parliament are investors in companies, and companies are leaders. It, you know, in 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 uh, as 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 agents of the crown in a variety of different ways. My argument is, I think that's often been uh, misunderstood as uh, as being able to be clearly understand understanding. You know, which is the dog and which is the tail? Like, what's wagging? What right? Um, but that actually, in any given case, uh, it's not abundantly clear w- in which direction power or or interest or influence is running. Um, and of course, there's also the point that it's what I call in the book a "portfolio colonialism." That the whole point of joint stock co- uh, colonization, joint stock model, is that people can be participants in lots of different enterprises at once. And there's no way, as a kind of abstraction or general model, to determine you know, well, are they. Are you know? Are they bringing their corporate interest to this to their work in the state, or are they are they um, using the or are they funneling state policy through these companies? In fact, you know, one of the, the I appreciated that you um, noticed the part about Calais and about the relationship with the European ambitions and what I think of what in the 16th century would have been the Crown's idea about empire would have been would have been going back to the days of Henry V and, and, and thinking about continental empire. Um, but one of the things I put out in that chapter is that a lot of government in this early white period was, you know, what you might think of as franchise government that did both a public office and a, uh, and a private and private property or private interest working together. So it, it, like the corporation, these two are always in a bit of um, uh, in, in a bit of, of flux. I think um,
0: this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: So, I mean, and finally, uh, you know, you've got a very... Uh, Sorry for going on with this for so long. Be a key question because what the other thing I do not want people to read, as I said before, I would I would not want people to take from this book, is the idea that these corporations are doing this work without the state or without the crown. It, in fact, one of the um, uh, one of the things I argue throughout the book is not only that the state's power uh, is growing alongside this story as a kind of, um, uh, you know, maybe not in parallel or perpendicular to, it, but somewhat askew from this corporate power related to it, uh, but that um, uh, one of the core arguments of the book is that we might think of the British empire itself, or that you might think of as the British empire proper, the one that's governed uh, by the growing state, that a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it was built by co-opting, regulating, and absorbing these forms of private colonization. You know Charles the in Virginia in 1625, or Queen Victoria in India in 1858, both use the same phrase of taking it upon ourselves or taking it upon ourselves to to um, uh, to take on this governance, right? So you know maybe it's a little too clever by half, but one of the ways I've thought about this is that the book is making an argument that the British Empire is an empire incorporated in two senses. One that it's filled with corporations, and that these companies and joint stock companies, some of which are corporations, some of which aren't, um, or what that means is a constant source of debate. But um, but that actually the British that the state's empire is built by incorporating or cobbling together other forms of colonial enterprise that may have started elsewhere. Corporations are one of those. Sometimes you know there's many that are that are also about intra and intercolonial transfers from one European to another there's the ways of co-opting indigenous sovereignty there's ways of thinking about this that are related I think um and that are also worth studying uh but that but that so the relationship between the companies, and I, I do think your the premise of your question uh uh though I'll I'll I'll, I'll not test your patience to keep talking about it I, I think that the the premise of your question that there are things we can learn about at least rethinking how we think, we might think that the lines between say company and state would work today, that this story is illustrative, that we need to open our minds to the fact that it's it can be a fair bit more complicated than just simply imagining that, you know, a, a corporation today is a quote unquote American company or something like that. Um uh there's uh um and that's that might be another issue that I I, I guess I would highlight here finally, which is to say that hitting these a lot of these companies or corporations down that I've been looking at as British is problematic. They are both at the same time often self-consciously um, exceptionally uh, 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 belligerent in their Britishness. You know, making claim to that for a variety of reasons, whether it's to persuade investors or to persuade the state, or frankly out of out of ideological conviction. But you know, you have any number of examples uh, of companies that I sort of mentioned before. For whom these lines can be extremely fuzzy. Um, the late, one example in the eighteen, eighties, eighteen nineties, the um, uh, the sort of lead lead uh, figure in the Royal Niger Company, essentially threatens if the company's not given its charter, threatens to go get one from France. Uh, the, there's a movability and a portability to the joint stock model that is that that that, that challenges a nation based conception of what empire should look like. And that's, that is, that is part of the tension that's going on here.
2: Yeah. I think that's another thing that comes through is, as you say, not only is there this diversity of outcomes where we see these failures, also, as you say, it's almost like a, an evolutionary process where this approach didn't quite work. So we're not going to go do down that. And obviously this has huge impact. I mean, like the, the failure of the Darien company leads to the act of union. Um, and then, yeah, and, on, and as on the other hand, um, the success and then the failure of the East India Company leads to that annexation as well. Um, so, uh, and 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 that's also something um, that comes across in, as you say, the roles that are played. I mean, we see James II in the Royal Africa Company uh, taking a very active, like setting it up, rather than sort of. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think I think it's very fair that you gave a longer answer because it is a very complicated question that, as you say, doesn't. I guess going back to maybe another theme is that these le- these neat delineations, not only do they not work in disciplinary studies, but they don't work in our understanding. Um, we can't just sort of draw these lines and expect things to be very separate. I think one of the things that also struck me is that there's a, di- like you, you have mentioned it, and there's a, there's a diversity in motivations too, and there's diversity in personalities. Um, I guess the most familiar figures are going to be people like Raffles, and Clive, and um, some people might know that Raffles didn't do so well in his own lifetime, and that's kind of a, a, a posthumous rehabilitation. Um, but yeah, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about just what sort of people were involved in these ventures.
1: Yeah, that's, that's you know, it's an excellent, another excellent question. It, um, all kinds. I know that's not a terribly satisfying answer, but I mean, one of the other things about doing something on this scale is, again, it's very hard... Um, uh, it's very hard to say that there's you know one one motivation or one intent you know that it's all about making profit right you've got people who are interested and that's not I, I want to be very clear that's not to suggest that it's not about profit or not about capital or that in some way I'm trying to uh, make a case for thinking about these as you know redeemable uh, enterprises, what I'm trying to say is that to understand why people do what they do, we got to understand the full range of, of their motivations. you know people interested in companies for proselytization can be um, just as integral to the dispossession of indigenous territories as those interested in, 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 in profit. and so it's worth thinking about. but a lot of these enterprises were driven, you know, by people whose motivations were you know theological as much as they were. Commercial for people. There were some, there were people, were, were, uh, one example I give in the book, kind of iconic example, is the colony of Georgia, which is self consciously, uh, begun by a bunch of people, you establishing a corporation, but very self consciously, not a joint stock corporation, but rather a corporation run by trustees as a form of charity or a form of philanthropy trying to in a sense respond to the moments of the scandals of the south sea bubble and other moments in the early 18th century uh to say we can do colonization differently also it was a you know anti-slavery and anti-monoculture and all of these were experiments it also um doesn't end up working and ends up uh, ultimately being absorbed another one of these enterprises absorbed at the state um and then becoming kind of the opposite of what it had set out to be uh so these are the kinds of contingencies you were talking about you know figures like like these, 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 like, you know, uh, sort of iconic figures that you mentioned, people like Raffles or Clive, they're critical. But the other thing that I'm trying to say in this book is that while individuals are super important in driving these stories, they're also conditioned by the structures through which they work. Um, that institutions matter. Institutions become repositories of, um, of, of property and of, of, of ideology, of legitimacy. I am saying legitimacy not in an absolute sense, but within the legal systems and structures of the British Empire. Uh, they also, what's an important theme in my book is they become repositories of history, that a lot of the arguments I was, as I was saying before about what I might call venture colonialism was not that it was new um, or that it was pathbreaking or swashbuckle, It was that it was time and time again, uh, starting from like 16th century Ireland to 19th century Africa One of the arguments for company colonialism was not that it was a novel uh, uh, innovation, but that this is how it had always been done. Right? You've got 16th century joint stock plantations and companies, and early 17th century plantations in Ireland that are calling back to Strongbow and the Marcher Lords of the 12th century, suggesting that this is how you know it's always been quote unquote private enterprise. That you can debate what that means. Some of this is about twisting some of these categories, or Edward Gibbon Wakefield in the early nineteenth century, who thinks of himself as a latter-day William Penn in South Australia. Uh, so, so there, the, these institutions have a way of connecting those categories, and Wakefield um, is a good example of another way in which I might answer your question, which is that I think a lot of what I was thinking about in this book—not I didn't set out to do this—but as I, the evidence sort of challenged me a bit, uh, was to challenge a little bit of. Uh, um, of our understanding of, of 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 a lot of this later colonialism is being driven by gentlemanly capitalism, what King and Hopkins have called gentlemanly capitalism. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of that. And I think it's a brilliant um, and, and an absolutely critical intervention um, in, a, in a number of ways and has changed the way we think about empire over the last several decades. Uh, but it also turned out that as you were looking at a lot of these companies, many of the people who put them forward, um, were not because not through their connections or common cause with government, but because they were ostracized from government or polite society, because they were on the make uh, or saw their projects as a waste to capital catapult their way into it. Conversely, you just get the palpable sense from a number of figures, especially in state bureaucracy, uh, who um, seethed with a kind of skepticism and distaste for some of these people, like Wakefield. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the story, but you know those who know. Uh, sort of the history of South Australia will know the story, you know, um, uh, uh, immediately was that, you know, Wakefield first famously conceived of his project for clothing for South Australia while serving time in prison, uh, for having tried to essentially kidnap an underage girl, uh, an heiress, uh, and try to lay claim to her fortune. And it wasn't the first time he had tried to do that. Right. You know, and so, um, uh, these were, but at the same time, Wakefield had these pretensions and becomes, you know, Marx calls him the greatest political economist of his age. He has these pretensions to rehabilitate himself and connect to these um, to these, uh, um, uh, these uh, intellectual circles that he was sort of interested in. So the, the company becomes a vehicle in a sense for, I, I don't know what the right word is, if it's rehabilitation or it's, it's, um, it's, it's about the financial, but also a social and political form of legitimacy uh, that at the same time, people like uh, like like James Stephen Jr. mentioned, um, you know, in the Colonial Office, uh, meant that 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 these company promoters, someone like him, these company promoters were, um, you know, a lot of them were unredeemable as a result of these these the the ways in which they sort of come to this and. Uh, less dramatically, I mean, Wakefield is a particu- particularly extreme story to be fair, um, but, a lot, uh, but less dramatically, I guess the other point I would make kind of more systemically is that a lot of um, the stories in this book show you how the companies or joint stock enterprises that sort of launched these colonial ventures were born not from great wealth, but from great debt. Um, and that the that, that debt and borrowing and the capacity to, in a sense, create empire out of these institutional systems that allow for you to um, uh, to supersede the fact that the, the capital is not actually there, um, are absolutely c- critical and key and essentially um, you know allow for those our uh, 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 critical technology that are based in these kinds of institutions, regardless of how the particular personalities or individuals you're sort of mentioning, uh, in a sense, are shaping them. If that makes sense.
2: Well, yeah, it does make sense. I mean, I think um, if if you'd have if you'd tried to sum up the book in a slightly longer sentence, I mean, not not only are you placing an originally supporting character, it's you're placing originally overlooked characters at the centre of this, um, or possibly characters that have been the main characters uh, to the detriment of the other dynamics that are going on. I mean, as you say, like it's not just Raffles and Clive; there are all these. People, whether they're the leaders or whether they're the bureaucrats, the administrators that are are all uh, uh, like out there doing their own thing. I mean, going, going back to my own personal personal knowledge of these things, I mean, what's remarkable is often that these um, these some of these projects develop in as you, as you say in a sort of British way, but also with like regional identities. At one point, almost was called the Scottish colony because of the absolute dominance of like Scottish businesses. And I think as we... So we're now drawing towards the end and it's been a really, really... I mean, even as someone who read and enjoyed the book and will be returning to it and recommending it, um, it's still been a very informative uh, conversation. You've mentioned, and it's very clear from the book itself, um, and I'm, I like, I've been very, been very much enjoying going through the references and bibliography, that there's a lot of research has gone into this book. Uh, and it's been research across archives, across countries, across eras. So I was wondering, is there anything in particular, um, I mean, this is one of the things I think archives are great for, is there anything in particular that surprised you or fascinated you um, um, more
1: than I suppose, yeah, you, you could, you expected? Yeah, it's a great question. So I assume we have another hour for me to answer this question, um, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, there's just so many different things. I mean, this this book was one surprise after another in the archive. Um, and, uh, you know, I I guess, uh, you, you know, so I could give you any number of specific examples, uh, which we don't really have the time for, of st- moments and stories that, you know, kind of blew my mind, uh, both sort of confirming my sort of instincts and suspicions, but also just... Going in places that were extremely unexpected about how these companies sort of imagined settlers, or the moments where you know you 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 think you are reading about something implicit, and you know, and the and they and they come right out and tell you, it, um, we are interested in the idea of colonies here in places that aren't, you know, uh, mahogany plantations in nineteenth-century Central America, for example, thought of as colonial projects. That were colonial projects, not for Britain per se, but necessary. But maybe, but 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 the company in combination with other forms of sovereign power, and of course some of these sort of figures that you mentioned, not just the Raffles and the Clives, but some of these guys like you know, uh, Brooke and Sarawak and places like that. That um, I know you're interested in. That that um, uh, that you know are supposed to be figures who are not interested in company colonization and somehow are connected to it in a variety of ways. So. I think the general answer I'd give you to that question um, is that uh, if I had to pick one, and I'm absolutely sure that after we end this interview, I will kick myself for thinking about other ones I'd rather answer with, um, uh, was this constant feeling of discovering connections across place and time deep in the archives. Um, You'd see ideas from the 17th century reiterated quite literally in the 19th century. Um, One of the main motivations uh, for the story of this book was to look at the Devastating and critically important moment of um, of the resurgence of companies uh, in late nineteenth century, particularly in Africa, and to to not see that as an anomaly that we didn't understand why they came back, but rather to see their connections across time and the fact that those connections were really there and self conscious, and just how much at every I was I think I may have answered this question before in a different way. Just how much the people that are behind these kinds of enterprises were thinking about their own history and making arguments. I mean, twisting the history, manipulating it in many ways, re- misunderstanding it, but thinking about um, that connection or how you'd find one particular person you thought of as associated with one company or not even with the company at all as being involved with another, or how you'd be able to see how how they were. Uh, you know, connected. I mean, the whiteboard in my office at various points made people really worry about me. You know, like one of those police procedurals with people, the connecting lines between you know uh, one place or another. But, but mostly, again, like just to come back to where we started this conversation, it was just all of the companies and the great complexity of them. I have to admit, like you know, when I set out, I really didn't expect to find so many lurking under every rock and around every corner. I didn't expect it to be as hard as it was. To be completely honest with you. Um, that's there's so much more that went into the book, um, and um, uh, some of them so much more complex in the space. I had to give them. I mean, certainly this conversation, but even in the book itself, um, and I learned so much about things I thought I knew about, but even I, I didn't really quite understand, or like the, that that even I hadn't come in skeptical about, or challenged my narratives about certain places and times. that I said, well, those were a company related to joint stock enterprise, and then I would find, of course, they were connected to this larger phenomenon so um, that they you know it was that uh, was really uh, a more general answer and I'm sure again if we had more time uh, I could tell you about all of the interesting stories but you know I tried to put them in the book so maybe that's something we can we shouldn't we can leave leave it at that.
2: I mean that's a that's a great selling point for the book I mean uh, I think you've you've probably um, enticed people uh, and and got their uh, their literary mouths watering uh, at the prospect um, I'd like to thank you for joining me, but just before you go, uh, I'd like to ask you, as I always do, what's next? Or are you burnt out from this? Which would be very understandable given the the Leviathan it is.
1: Huh. that's a good question. Yeah, no, I mean, of, of course, it, it uh, it's uh, I, I would lie be lying if I said I wasn't a little exhausted, both from from the book as well as from you know from the last several years of just living life through the way the world has been. Uh, but it, you know, the book has just generated so many, there's so much in the book, but there's so much I didn't put in the, bag you probably say that about any book, right? Um, so one of the things I hope to do is to be able to follow up actually more deeply on some of those stories that um, some of the particular instances I didn't you know, want to take your time up with in, to answer your last question, some of the particular cases, uh, really fascinating moments that sort of bring out these issues. Uh, but then I've gotten um, I'm uh, involved in a number of other projects. I've actually been uh, talking uh be, being involved with the, a, a group uh looking at the ways some of these stories of private colonization the history of private colonization might help us to think about um the next generation of, of uh space colonization and uh yeah and 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 um, the the which is again another privatized form of of expansion uh and uh and, and a number of other projects some of which may be going back to a different side of um, of my intellectual interest and going back into the world of geography and cartography and space in a different sense um, and doing some work on um on, on on sort of 18th century geography and making the British Empire that I like to get into so I've got a, a number of things that I'm kind of uh, interested in but for for right now I, I really am really um kind of excited about being having some space to follow up on some of the the most um uh maybe some of the deeper deeper dives. Uh, that there wasn't space for in the book, or they get mentioned briefly, or maybe that even, frankly, since publishing it, I've learned more about and had a different perspective on.
2: Well, I'm going to, and I'm going to say this, and I'm, I'm ready for the listeners to cringe, but I think you've just got to watch this space. Ah. So, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, and just a reminder, we've been talking about Empire Incorporated, which is out now from Harvard University Press, and I wholeheartedly recommended it. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. This has been a wonderful conversation.
1: I really appreciated it.